If you dial 911 from a cell phone, they don't automatically have your geolocation. So if you're in a distressed situation, you've been drugged, you've been harmed, and you or you don't know where you are, calling 911 or some of these other devices just really don't cut it. Cut it. Welcome to Angels, Exits, and Acquisitions, the place to learn how to fund, scale, exit, and massively profit as an angel investor or entrepreneur. Brought to you by the Angel Investors Network. And now, here's your host, Jeff Barnes. Hi there, Jeff Barnes here again with another episode of Angels, Exits, and Acquisitions here at Angel Investors Network's Sharks and Angels Live in Austin, Texas. I'm here with Avery and her startup, Lois. (laughs) So... There's nothing confusing about that at, Not all. at all. No. no. So I guess that's where I want to start then. Why? First off, what is the company? Th- thank you for being on the show. First of yeah, all. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, what is the company and why did you name it Lois? So Lois is my uh, grandmother's name and my middle name. We are an enterprise SaaS company that built a technology in the personal safety space. So we have a personal safety app. And we're also modernizing the entire 911 infrastructure in the, in the country. Um, Lois was just an idea to sort of humanize the, the technology. So we wanted to name it something that made people feel like they were protected and it was a more humanistic kind of name. So that's where it came from. How did this idea come up? I'm always curious about the genesis of a, a company. Yeah. So I have um, 20 years in my background in real estate. I'm a broker in the state of Florida and the state of Michigan. And um, I opened a company in Florida for selling investment properties. And I was almost assaulted on a showing. Um, luckily, my parents raised me to have really good street smarts. And I had known, you know, not to go further into the property and to get myself out of the situation and I'm, I've always been a techie pr- kind of person. So I researched uh, any technology that was out there that could protect me. And I was sort of shocked to realize that there wasn't anything really dominating the market in the personal safety space. And then later researching the 911 infrastructure realized that it was very antiquated, built in the 1960s based on landlines. So that's how I went from a 20-year real, real estate career into being a startup entrepreneur. Yeah, necessity is the mother of invention, right? Yeah. So that's that's pretty profound. Um, you know, we could dive a little bit deeper to that, but I think that, that that in and of itself would really prompt me to start thinking about a lot of aspects when it comes to your own personal safety. And you chose the technology route. I think a lot of people would have said, okay, I want to go down learning personal defense or, you know, carrying a firearm, which, you know, we advocate a lot for, for our businesses as well. But you're right. When it comes to technology, what were some of the things you found when you're out there looking to try and figure out this dynamic? So everything we found was very reactive. So you had to press a button, you had to call. There were a lot, there were safety apps out there, but it was, they were basically dialers to 911. And what most people don't understand is if you dial 911 from a cell phone, they don't automatically have your geolocation. So if you're in a distressed situation, you've been drugged, you've been harmed, and you or you don't know where you are, calling 911 or some of these other devices just really don't cut it. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to directly connect that 
pertinent information to first responders immediately. In addition to that, we wanted to create something that could be proactive. Now, we do have an active alarm button that you can press in case you don't have a check-in set up. But we wanted people who were going on dates or people who were home, home care workers or anyone who's out and about, like a real estate agent, we wanted them to be able to proactively set up an alert that would check up on them. And if they didn't answer or respond, the police or a loved one would know where they are and that they need help. So like life alert for the real world, <laughs> you know, not yeah. the I've fallen down and I can't get up kind of thing, but I'm in a potentially dangerous situation. Um, it's almost like the the silent button under the desk at the banks, right? Where they're going to press and get a silent alarm without triggering off the the robbers, but for the individual. Similarly, and even with something like Life Alert, though, you still have to do something. You still have to press the button. Mm -hmm. So there was really nothing where the person didn't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. And that was staggering to me because I thought, you know, if this individual had drugged me or harmed me, Nobody knew where I was, who I was with, or, you know, if I was going to return home safely. They wouldn't have found me maybe until hours later. And in times of crisis, minutes matter. Absolutely. There was a Wall Street Journal article that came out a couple months ago that said that uh, just increasing responsive time by one minute, response time by one minute would save 10,000 lives in this country alone. Wow. Yeah. I was listening to a similar uh, podcast, same, similar idea, which this was a doctor, a cardiologist, and his father was also a physician. They live in a really upscale neighborhood in England, in London. And they were told forever that response times for an ambulance was like eight minutes. And that's, that's after you've had an event and somebody needs to have their life safe. This person called 911 because they were having, their, his father was having a cardiac arrest and took them 30 minutes to get there. And he had friends with them and they said, don't worry, we'll call 911. They'll be here almost instantly. Unfortunately, because they didn't know that it was actually going to take them 30 minutes, he passed away before they even showed up. Whereas they could have driven him to the ER and he probably would have been okay. Um, yeah, minutes do matter and stuff That's like that. Infrastructure right there. It is. Currently is event happens, it goes to some kind of third-party call center, then it goes to first responders. So how our technology is different is we go directly to the first responder. We've automated and maybe we'll be implementing some AI into that automation, that process. So that's what saves us time. And then we know that we can determine what kind of response they need, whether it's ambulance or police, fire, what have you. Right. So from a yeah, obviously we're talking about technology here that's going to save people's lives. And one of the questions generally comes up when we're talking about AI, people are always worried AI is going to take over the world and it's going to take over people's jobs. And, you know, a lot of us that are working with AI a lot, we don't believe that. We do believe it's going to change the skills that people have. But how does this impact the existing infrastructure when it comes to call centers and dispatchers and 911 and all of that? How, how will that affect it? Well, there's still always going to be a place for human beings to interact in emergency situations, but we're just eliminating the ones that are redundant. So if we know for sure that something's wrong and we can get them to the right first responder, we don't need that middleman from, say, ADT trying to figure out what's going on, wasting time. So um, it's more about repurposing those jobs and allowing those people to have Uh, more skilled roles, or they can spend more time with people who do need 
a person on the line. So we're not at all going to make those jobs obsolete. We're just going to make it more efficient. We're going to help the call center workers and hopefully reduce costs. Okay, wonderful. And you've been raising capital now for this business. It's how old? So the business, if you minus COVID and some of our R&D in the beginning, we're, we're about like a four or five year business. Okay. We've had um, quite a bit of traction in terms of our technology. We have a patent. We had a partnership with NASA in 2017 to help further build out some additional tech. Um, so this is our first actual capital raise other okay. than, you know, friends and family in the very beginning and founder. It's mostly founder funded so right. far. Yeah. Okay. And how far along are you in that process right now? So we're about $200,000 into a million dollar raise. We just started um, a, like three months ago, I think, officially. Um, and we've been targeting angel groups, um, mostly in the Detroit metro area where I am at. And then our offices, our tech offices are in central Florida. And, you know, we're in that really, that catch 22 of, come back to us when you're X amount of revenue, you know, positive. And at that point, we may not even need the amount of investment that they're asking. So there's very few groups that are actually offering to help get the company to where it needs to be. Um, And that's one of the things that I've been um, impressed about this group um, is that, you know, it seems like you are very interested in investing, invested in getting companies to that place where you can open them up to the network and that they will be a profitable company for your, for your network of investors. That's the goal, right? And we coach entrepreneurs a lot on not asking for too much capital too early because then you give up the company, right? And we don't want that, especially if you're going after somebody who's a very sophisticated investor and they know how to wrangle their way in and get a board seat, maybe prematurely. And then you end up with a company that you don't even like, right? So we, we always try to caution the entrepreneurs on that. But like you said, on the flip side, if you need the capital to grow the team, then you need the capital to grow the team. There's, uh, it, there's ways around that, but it is a lot more work for sure. And I think that in, in this day and age, especially, I mean, of course, we could say this at any time in history, probably, but you know, there's so much capital available and there's, no, there's going to be an unlimited amount of capital. But what it really comes down to is that strategic money, right? Finding the right person. So you're in Detroit, mobility capital of the country, if not the world, right? Um, I spent some time there working with tech stars and, and doing some mentorship there in those programs. And do you find that the infrastructure there in Detroit, there are people that are helping with this? Because what you are is essentially a mobility startup, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean. Yes and no. So there's a there's a group called Michigan Founders Fund where they're trying to sort of combine all of the resources in one place mm-hmm. for uh, startups. But Detroit's a manufacturing town, so traditionally they are investing in products and car company related companies are, you know, there's a lot of like uh, renewable energy companies. So um, there isn't a huge tech scene in Detroit. We're actually headquartered in Traverse City, Michigan, which is more has it's like more of a tech. It's kind of having a tech moment. But um, I I will have to say that the angel groups have kind of been it's kind of been the same response as I've had with some of the other groups. We uh, did just get our first uh, customer, small customer in Florida, social work group. 
but they really want to see a lot more traction. A social work group? Yeah. So we're B2B. So we, um, we basically have um, our first customer is uh, social workers that uh, place kids who are taken out, you know, who are actually, they actually place them back into the homes. Okay. So they're going to some, into some very high risk areas. Right. Um, so that would be in our lone worker bucket of customers. And, you know, again, they almost want to see you back when you just don't need them anymore. Um, so that's, I think a struggle that a lot of startups, uh, have to deal with. And sometimes it's just smarter to focus on individual angels, which is what I've been doing. So our first two commitments were from individual angels and accredited investors right. um, who just want to get in real early and get those incredible returns. Yeah. So, you know, for the entrepreneurs that are listening to this, watching this right now, you know, they, they definitely struggle with raising capital, pitching people, finding investors on a daily basis. So what have you found? Or who are inspired by the idea, who either get the technology or understand changing and disrupting infrastructure. Um, and I've also just been um, casting a wide net and just, you know, everyone in my network, just letting them know I'm raising, yeah. letting them know what I'm doing, coming to events like this. This was, you know, obviously post-COVID. We're all sort of getting used to doing these types of things again. But face to face is just so much better than the than the Zooms, even though those are convenient. Um, people feel more invested. And so I think that's just, you know, just letting people know that you're raising money, not necessarily asking for it, Bingo. but just letting people know what you're doing and that you're raising money because that person could lead to a customer. Yeah. And the best money is customers. I mean, the best investment money is money that comes from a customer who, you know, you don't, isn't taking equity. So I just look at it as we have a target of an additional 800,000. We don't really care how that comes in, but smart money is also a really good place to be. Yeah. A network that can help us get to that next level is much more important than just the money. Yeah. Strategic partnerships and strategic investors are huge when you're getting going because it's one thing to take money in the door, but... If you start down a path and it turns out that's the wrong road to be on altogether and you only find out much later, right? It's like the, the cruise ship or the airplane that's only off by one degree, but they go 500 miles. Well, that's a big course correction versus figuring out really early on. So yeah. I agree with that. And what you said is it's so important for entrepreneurs to understand just because somebody has money doesn't make them an investor, right? right? And even if they are an angel investor, doesn't mean they're your angel investor, right? And I can't tell you how many times that we have to reiterate that to people that not everyone is a good fit to invest in a company. And you don't always want that either because I have seen companies tanked with the wrong investor. Yes. Right. Somebody comes in and they just want to push, bully, bully you around, tell you what to do. And here's how it's going to be. And then, you know, you waste a year of your, your life or more and you just try to get them out or the deal falls apart. So, you know, kudos to you for, for looking for the right person. It is hard. Um, it's, it's not a fun road. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's sales. It's like anything else. You're selling yourself and you're selling the idea and it is high risk this early. Mm -hmm. Um, I've mitigated the risk by having that due diligence process be really tight. So the patents and all of our additional intellectual property and our traction and our awards and our roadmap, you know, it's all really well mapped out. Um, and the market, so 
you know, you can mitigate the early stage risk pretty well for investors. But at the end of the day, there's also, I think, a little bit of kismet involved, you know, right place, right time. And just being putting yourself in the rooms is absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't overemphasize that enough either, which is you need to be where the money is and Zoom doesn't count. I'm sorry, but it just doesn't it doesn't do justice. Right. Getting to know you, getting to break bread, have dinner, have a drink, have coffee, whatever. Getting to know somebody is, is vital because it's a it's a trust issue more than anything else. Right. Got to be able to believe you. Um, but I want to ask you this question, like, who do you see is your ideal customer? Who is the at the end of the day, who are you selling this product to? So part of what we're doing with this pre-seed raise is to determine product market fit. Um, We're kind of like on the runway, ready to go, excited to bring this technology into the world. Um, We have some ideas. So we kind of have three buckets. One is the the loan worker groups, like the social workers, real estate agents, even people who work like on oil rigs. I mean, anyone who's like out there in potentially dangerous situations, Um, large companies that have employee benefit programs, things like that. The second bucket would be emergency response centers or uh, emergency related uh, companies. So most companies don't have their own call center, their their own what we would call emergency response center. They outsource that. There's like six big ones in this country. So we would target them to help automate them and reduce costs. So that's kind of our second bucket. The third would be tech companies. So companies like Uber dating apps, even some of the rideshare companies who want a big differentiator, we can kind of work in the background as an, another additional offering for their employees and for their customers. So we're looking for these big customer, uh, big or mid-sized customers that need a differentiator, want to lower their costs or want to protect their employees, and then hopefully get to the point where we can start attracting acquirers who want to take it to you know, the stratosphere. So in a a former life of mine, I was that strategic acquirer or investor at large corporations. And we were always looking for those innovators. That's actually how I got my start into angel investing and doing a lot of this was I was the guy that understood the business operations of of a big company and was good with technology, but I wasn't the guy building it. Right. And so finding people like you and then saying, okay, well, how does this fit into our ecosystem? And you mentioned a bunch of great ideas there. And so I, I love that. And obviously you're gonna have to choose one to go after initially and figure that out. So when it comes down to it, it's, it's yeah, going after angel investors, going after those people with money is really important, but that smart money is even more important. And so there are like the incubators and the, the innovation centers inside of these big companies. And I know because I helped build a few of them, um, but I would say the insurance world and the benefits world, those are great opportunities for you. So 